Hi, I'm Alan Alexandrov, and I'm one of the senior editors of the Oxford Journal Global Summetry. This is another in our podcast episodes on shaking the global order, um, American foreign policy in the age of Trump. And I'm particularly pleased to be able to introduce to you Corey Shockey. Corey is a research fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution. She has served in a number of different positions in the Department of Defense and the National Security Council. In 2007 and 2008, she was Deputy Director of Policy Planning at the U.S. State Department. With all that heavy work, she's still been able to find the time uh, to write a number of important volumes, including uh, a volume with Jim Mattis, who is currently the Secretary of Defense, called Warriors and Citizens, American Views of Our Military, and in fact is, in, uh, is just be, uh, releasing a new volume uh, that she wrote called A Safe Passage, The Transition from British to American Hegemony. It is my absolute pleasure uh, to welcome Corey uh, to this podcast series, uh, and let's join in the conversation. So it's a great pleasure today to introduce uh, Corey Shockey, who is out there on the West Coast uh, at Stanford and the Hoover Institution. So welcome, Corey. Thank you. All right, so I'm going to start with uh, uh, the big question for the moment, and that is, can the liberal order, the liberal order that we've seen over seven decades, can it survive this America first policy and the age of Trump? What's your thought, Corey? Um, My thought is that it depends on how long that lasts. Mm. I think the liberal order is proving itself quite remarkably resilient and robust these 70 years. This isn't the first failure of American leadership, uh, nor is it the first time of crisis. You know, the great historian of NATO, Stan Sloan, who used to be at the Congressional Research Service, was uh, fond of saying that the three oldest refrains across the Atlantic were NATO's in crisis, we need new thinking, and deterrence is breaking down. And he wrote that in about 1980. (laughs) So I I think we uh, very often underestimate the genius of good design. And we very often, especially those of us who live, who have the luxury of living in liberal societies, we very often, uh, because our societies are loud and conflictual and and uh, there's no subject we don't swarm to and argue about, we very often underestimate just how good we are at solving problems and just how important those loud, messy debates are mm-hmm. to unearthing good solutions to our problems. So I think both domestically and internationally, we're perhaps underestimating the robustness of the liberal order. But here's why I'm pretty optimistic. The first is that America's allies are stepping into the breach and 
and taking more responsibility for sustaining the order onto their shoulders. Um, and the Canadian government is not only not provoking the Trump administration, but they are working very um, creatively with American states, American big city mayors, American businesses, American civic organizations to have a conversation with the American public that the American president doesn't want to have. Um, and, and just one more example, you know, the, the mayor of San Diego and the mayor of Tijuana are on a barnstorming tour around congressional districts in the United States, holding public meetings to talk about how NAFTA is good for the economy of every specific congressional district they're going to. Mm -hmm. That's such smart politics. And it plays, it uses the potential advantages of a federal system and a, an American government that's so uh, pervious, that's so malleable to outside opinion. And it's using that to craft a good strategy to challenge the president's views. Last thing I'll say, I'm sorry I'm giving such a long answer, but this is, it's so near and dear to my heart. And we, we really need to find ways to persuade our fellow Americans of the value of the order that was constructed by the hard men who had fought World War II. And the last, um, the last thing I'd say about it is that the Chicago Council on Global Affairs does an annual survey of American public attitudes. And in the last year, there has been a really substantial swing in public attitudes on immigration, on alliances, and on trade. The three issues that President Trump campaigned on, mm -hmm. um, and the swing has been roughly 15 points away from the president's view. What I think that means is that the president is quite rightly saying, hey, everybody's taking the answer to this for granted and it shouldn't be. He's proposing a solution. And as a result of those loud, messy public debates we are having on these issues, people are actually getting themselves educated and coming to conclusions different than the president's. Well, before we leave that, I guess the question is, what's the conception that he has of American foreign policy and American leadership, if I can use that term? Uh, what, what's in his head? Well, I wouldn't presume <laughs> to know what's in his head. His stated policies, um, the, pol the policies he campaigned on, are policies that suggest alliances are not in America's interest, mm -hmm. that allies are taking advantage of us and leaving us with all the risk and all the burdens, that trade policy is inherently a zero-sum game and the United States has been being taken advantage of uh, as a result of trade agreements that Washington elites signed but that are bad for American workers. Mm -hmm. And third, that immigrants are a danger to us and that illegal immigration is swarming over the borders of our country and are causing increases in crime and decreases in wages for Americans. Mm -hmm. 
And not a single one of those propositions on which the president campaigned is factually correct, right? Okay. Uh, uh, let me just take the example of crime by illegal immigrants. All right. Levels of crime committed by illegal immigrants are substantially lower than the levels of crime committed by either legal immigrants or uh, American citizens. And if you, if you try and think about why that might be, it's because illegal immigrants came here for a reason and are worried about getting deported. So if they commit a crime, they know they are gonna be in the hands of the law enforcement and immigration system and taken out of the country. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I think, I think the central error in President Trump's worldview is actually um, fundamentally contrary to the liberal international order the United States has built. What, what President Trump mistakenly believes is that uh, what is good for us needs to be a concession by others. Mm -hmm. And what is good for others is an imposition on us. And the genius of the world order the United States started trying to bring into effect after World War I and succeeded in bringing it into effect after World War II is an international order where the strongest powers voluntarily allow weaker powers to have some say over outcomes because that gives the outcomes greater legitimacy in the eyes of a broader group of countries. Mm -hmm. And second, it dramatically reduces the cost to the United States of imposing and sustaining that order because other people want us to succeed. Our values are central to that. They're the brand of who we are, right? We hold these truths to be self-evident. So values matter in driving down the cost of sustaining an international order because people think they know what they what we stand for. And, and in a way, Donald Trump seems not able to get his head around. Those truths are universal. Um, and we've worked hard to expand the area of geography where people have the right to control their own governments, where where the rule of law and the morality that people have rights and they loan them in limited ways to governments holds sway. And because the president genuinely doesn't believe in any of this stuff, mm -hmm. he's doing a lot of reckless damage to the order. Well, I mean, based on what you've said, uh, and you've indicated that you see the allies kind of stepping in at least to try to prolong uh, or retain uh, the fundamental aspects of the order. But I guess the bigger question is, how do potential adversaries see um, uh, Trump's uh, America first foreign policy? So Russia oh, or China. Come true, mm -hmm. right? Because America's central advantage with the international order we've created is its soft power. Right. If you think about Eisenhower's basic national security policy, what we now call the national security strategy, 
Mm -hmm. Eisenhower in 1956 uh, envisioned using military force to hold our adversaries at bay while the magnetism of our economy and our culture change their societies from within, right? That's the fundamental American approach to the international order. Um, and, and President Trump is calling almost every aspect of that into effect, right? Mm -hmm. I, by being, by calling into question the solidity of our alliance promises, he makes the hold adversaries at bay part harder. Um, and uh, by not being clear about where the lines are that we will or will not enforce, he encourages people like Russia to test us. Okay. So you uh, see a testing potentially then by America's adversaries over absolutely. the period. And I, I think this started during the period of retrenchment in the late Bush administration. Mm -hmm. It was exacerbated during the Obama administration where, where people knew the president wouldn't use military force um, in Iran, in Korea, in other places where we were being challenged. And I think we're Syria, and I think we're seeing it now again. The Trump administration has done a reasonably good job in crafting policy on a, a limited war against ISIS, a, a returning to Iraq to win the war in Iraq alongside our Iraqi allies, and sustaining the course in Afghanistan. In all three of those instances, though, President Trump was persuaded to adopt policies contrary to what he campaigned on. And in the case of the ISIS fight, mm -hmm. because of the president's objections to what he calls nation building and what might also be termed consolidating victory, uh, we are not doing the kinds of things that will stabilize uh, areas and, and affect our, our relationship with populations in areas that we are winning back from ISIS control. Okay. Let me ask you one puzzling uh, question around Iraq, and that is, what, what is Trump policy with respect to the Kurds? I mean, it, it, he seems to have taken, you know, kind of hands-off, and I mean, clearly there are difficulties with Kurdish politics itself, but, you know, how, how does the United States maintain kind of the stability between the Iraqi Shia government and the Kurdish, uh, the Kurdish uh, uh, ethnic groups in the north. Yeah, um, you're right. It's definitely a hard question. I do think the Trump administration has a pretty clear policy on that, though, which is that that they will give uh, unlimited assistance to Kurdish forces fighting ISIS. Mm -hmm. They will not assist Kurdish political or military forces uh, seeking secession from Iraq. Uh, and uh, they do not believe that the Kurdish government, whose term 
expired some years ago but remains in power, yep. it's morally superior to a government in Baghdad that is struggling to find ways to be multi-sectarian. Okay. And that leaves it then not supporting Barzani, I presume, and hoping that some kind of accommodation can be reached then with opposition forces within the Kurdish alliance and the Shia government. It's not a Shia government. It's the federal government. Right. But there isn't a huge amount of Sunni support there. Uh, you know, uh, multi-sectarian politics in Iraq aren't newly hard. They're <laughs> always hard. Right. And the Kurdish independence vote has made them harder, not easier. Okay. So the Kurds provoked the position that they're in. I am deeply sympathetic to their frustration that a whole series of promises about American assistance in working with the Baghdad government to expand the space of, of autonomy in a federal Iraq, right? Like we haven't done our share. Rob Ford, who was an outstanding ambassador in Syria and before that was several times posted in Iraq, has a really good piece uh, in the last couple of days, outlining America, the American government's broken promises to the Kurds. And, and so we should take seriously their aggravation, but the choice they've made about how to handle that aggravation is not something we can support unless we're willing to support the disintegration of the state of Iraq, and I don't think we are. Okay. And second, the Kurds made a choice that they lack the physical ability to see through, right? Turkey doesn't want an independent Kurdistan. Syria doesn't want an independent Kurdistan. Iraq doesn't want an independent Kurdistan. Iran doesn't want an independent Kurdistan. The United States doesn't want an independent Kurdistan. How do you get an independent Kurdistan without at least somebody in that mix yeah. in favor or being strong enough to take it with your own hands. That's the problem with the Kurdish approach. They don't have, I don't know what their theory of victory is. Fair enough, although to be fair, not all the Kurds take that position, right? Yes, you're right. Um, not, not all the Kurds take that position. Oh, one other thing I wanted to say, when you said the, uh, the Shia government in uh, Baghdad, yeah. I saw a poll recently that I found astounding. Um, and it was a it was taken of Iraqis and it broke down by sectarian lines. And 38% of Shia Iraqis were hopeful for the future of the country. Mm -hmm. Nearly 60% of Sunni Iraqis were hopeful for the future of the country. Hmm. That's astonishing. Given that, you know, we're in the midst of a Sunni adaptation from being the dominant force in Iraqi politics only, uh, what, uh, 12 years ago, to acknowledge, to having an inability to protect their communities from ISIS, mm -hmm. to working alongside Iraqi security forces to liberate their areas. And it suggests to me that 
the fact that so many more Sunni are hopeful for the future than Shia suggests to me that the government of Prime Minister Abadi is making genuine efforts to make Syrians feel part of a larger multi-sectarian whole, and that perhaps Shia are more anxious about it than Kurds at the moment. Okay. Excuse me, Shia more anxious than Sunni at the moment. Okay. What that also means, if you get a sort of grand bargain on the way forward in Iraq between Sunni and Shia, is that Kurds are no longer kingmakers in Iraq, which is the role that they have had the luxury of playing for the last 12 years. Right. Okay. Let me let me switch geography a little bit here and move you over uh, uh, to Korea. Uh, recently, you suggested that the president missed an opportunity in his speech before the United Nations to emphasize the need for negotiation there on the Korean Peninsula as opposed to talking about the destruction of North Korea, which is, of course, what, what he said. As, right. you, as you said... The main reason I favor negotiations is that we may actually have to go to war on the Korean Peninsula. If we do, my mom, I don't know your mom, but I'm sure she's a very nice lady, is not going to be able to get to a place of supporting that unless she thinks her government has done everything possible to avert it. So how do you see war developing on the Korean Peninsula? Well, what the White House is saying, the president and the national security advisor are saying, mm -hmm. is that the president will not tolerate a nuclear-armed Iran with missiles that can reach the United States. Mm -hmm. And um, they are very strongly hinting that the United States would conduct a preventative attack, that is, not when damage to us was imminent, but just, you know, it's a gathering storm. We need to do something about it. Very much in the Bush administration went to war in Iraq in 2003. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so that's what the White House seems to be saying. And they are also saying there's no point in negotiations. The North Koreans cheat on every deal they sign, which that latter point is actually true, uh, that they cheat on, on every deal they sign. But that presume, but the White House's position presumes that the only reason to talk to the North Koreans is to get a deal. Right. When in fact, lots of good reasons to talk. The one you mentioned, bringing the American public along before you fight a war of choice. Uh, second, keeping our allies aligned with us, South Korea and Japan principally. Mm -hmm. Both of them are very skittish and in my judgment, would be unwilling to support a preventative war uh, undertaken by the United States for the simple reason that both of their territories are already in North Korean range. And 33 million people live in Seoul, South Korea. North Korea doesn't even need to use its nuclear weapons. It can just use artillery and missiles and kill everybody in Seoul. Um, so, so the second reason for negotiations is to help bring our allies along to the common understanding of North Korea that we have. Mm -hmm. And the third reason is that, you know, 
North Korea is the most closed society in the world. We actually don't understand them very well. And one purpose for negotiations is to size up your adversaries, to get a sense of who they are and what they want and whether there's any possibility of finding common ground. Maybe the answer to that is no, but maybe the answer to it is yes. So it's worth exploring. And then, of course, there's my mother, uh, <laughs> who is not a nice person, but um, but a very sound, sensible American who, you know, after the Bush administration telling her we needed to invade Iraq because it was this great big threat to us with its nuclear weapons, uh, you know, she's going to take a fair amount of persuading on a preventative war case next time around. And the president hasn't invested nearly enough political effort into persuading Americans of the costs, the losses, the deaths that will result from us choosing to prevent a potential risk to us. But Corey, I mean, it's one thing to contemplate, as it turns out incorrectly, a preventative war in Iraq when there was really uh, no dramatic uh, likely impact on uh, the United States, for sure, but potentially... That is not what the Bush administration believed in the spring of 2003. Yeah, but if you look at Korea, we, we're quite clear, relatively clear, that a preventative war, and you've already described parts of it, would likely lead to potentially 100,000, 200,000 deaths in the arena of Seoul because they've got all this artillery lined up across the border. And it would uh, lead uh, to American deaths if for those who live in Seoul and in the arena. And it would lead to deaths likely in Japan as well how do we contemplate that um, preventative war? Well, uh, let me start by saying I don't favor it. Okay. That, that um, I actually think nor I am more confident than the White House that a nuclear-armed North Korea can be deterred from using those weapons or um, – attacking the United States, Japan, or South Korea, mm -hmm. because in my judgment, regime survival is the ultimate aim of the North Korean government, and they cannot be in, it, in any doubt at all that an attack on South Korea, Japan, or the United States would result in the killing of the entirety of the North Korean leadership. Mm -hmm. So I, I actually think that's been the right threat since 1950. It's still the right threat. And the best strategy for the United States is instead of drawing so much attention and giving so much political valence to North Korea crossing the nuclear threshold, we ought instead to try and think of ways to diminish the political value to North Korea of crossing the nuclear threshold. I think it's better non-proliferation policy. I think it's better Korea policy. I think we should say, you know, since 1953, our policy has been you attack South Korea, the United States, or Japan, and your leadership's dead. Okay. I think that worked. Here's the administration's argument, though. 
And it does parallel very closely the Bush administration's argument for Iraq in 2003, which is that North Korea is a very dangerous government. They are uh, jailers to their own people. They are willing to starve them to such an extent that children in North Korea who should genetically have black hair have brown hair from extended malnutrition. That they are, they do barbaric stuff like try and blow the legs off South Korean soldiers by by uh, planting IEDs on the southern side of the DMZ. This is not a government we can trust with these weapons. Moreover, the argument that many people make that, hey, the Soviet Union crossed the thresholds and we managed to establish deterrence with them, the Chinese crossed the nuclear threshold, we managed to um, we managed to make deterrence work with them. Mm -hmm. The administration has two rebuttals to that. One is that uh, the Soviet governments and the Chinese governments were rational actors and were skeptical the North Koreans are rational. And, and just look at the guy if you have any doubt. Right? Kills his uncle with, with an anti-aircraft gun. Uh, do you really want to put the safety of the United States in that guy's hands. And then the second plank of that rebuttal argument by the administration is, it, even in the case of the Soviet Union and China, there was a 15-year period of hair-raising crises. Right. The crisis over Berlin, the crisis over Cuba, where we very nearly fought nuclear wars. We would like to nip this problem in the bud and not kick the can down the road for others to have to solve through these kind of enormously destabilizing crises. But even your colleague, um, Secretary of Defense Mattis, very recently up at the DMZ said, uh, he made clear, our goal is not war, but rather the complete verifiable and irreversible denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. That doesn't strike me as preventative war, um, and uh, I suspect the the really governing question there is: Do we see as the end point in this immediate circumstances denuclearization of the DPRK, that is the North Korea, or is there something you know a kind of focus on halting the nuclear policy program? Rather than simply arguing, well, we got to get rid of the nuclear uh, the nuclear uh, policy for North Korea. So I stand second to no one in my admiration of Jim Mattis, um, and on Korea policy in particular, he has been an enormous force for good mm -hmm. in trying. Most recently, only yesterday, in his testimony on Capitol Hill with Secretary Tillerson emphasizing that the use of military force by the United States would be in retaliation for an attack on the United States or its allies. So he is trying to rule out preemptive war. Right. Um, and accept that the U.S. would use military force first in a Korean contingency 
only if we thought there was imminent danger to the United States or its allies. So rocket on a launch pad, warhead, nuclear warhead on it, uh, Viva Los Angeles written on the side. Um, so a preemptive strike, that is, you think damage to you is imminent. Uh, that's the ground Secretary Mattis and Secretary Tillerson staked out yesterday. Okay. And I think it's eminently sensible. Mm -hmm. That is not, however, what the President of the United States nor the National Security Advisor are saying. And so the administration is giving a lot of mixed messages in, on a problem that has a very thin margin for error. Okay. Um, uh, so, so that's deeply problematic. Um, and they ought to straighten that out. But I suspect uh, the problem, as on so many other national security issues, the problem is the president himself. And the national security advisor is doing his best to, to put the soundest arguments um, and the uh, supporting government policies in place around what he believes the president has decided. And the secretary of state and secretary of defense are trying to hem the president in and also trying to have a public conversation that they hope will affect the president's private choices. Okay. Okay. So, so do we end up then with the prospect? I mean, it seems to me that the, the real dilemma that we face here is, let's say, success uh, of Mattis and others and hemming in the president and taking off the table preventative war, right? But doesn't the policy leave allies very uncomfortable with the, the balance as it currently exists with the real prospect of proliferation on the part of South Korea and or Japan? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I do think the South Koreans have been desperately nervous since 1992 when the United States unilaterally denuclearized the Korean Peninsula by removing American tactical nuclear weapons that were stationed in South Korea. Mm -hmm. And if you're sitting in the Blue House uh, in Seoul and you look at the United States undertaking a virtuous and self the virtuous self-restraint of trying to advance non-proliferation policy by denuclearizing the Korean Peninsula, and you see that it results in North Korea becoming the only nuclear power on the Korean Peninsula, yeah, of course that's going to stoke public and even leadership support for weapons of their own. Mm -hmm. And it will stoke that desire even more if the U.S. security commitment feels anything short of rock solid. If, for example, a, a candidate for president says, these guys are taking advantage of us. They ought to get their own weapons. We should stop defending them, as candidate Trump did. Yeah. Um, so, right, they're not wrong to be nervous, um, nor are the Japanese. But I think in the case of both Korea and Japan, for reasons that have to do with history and domestic politics and political culture, would vastly prefer what is actually happening, which is 
a tightening of the bonds of alliance relationship, not just between the U.S., Japan, and South Korea, but also folding in Australia, potentially folding in Vietnam, potentially folding in the Philippines, potentially folding in mm -hmm. India, other countries that have common interests in a stable uh, Korean peninsula and in preventing nonproliferation. So, so the administration has got lots of pieces of this policy right on the military side and on the diplomatic side. Uh, you know, it's fashionable to trash Rex Tillerson, and because I am a fashionable woman, I engage in it as well. But one thing he has done really well is, is come up with creative new ways to cut off money flows going to North Korea. So getting countries to break diplomatic relations, getting countries to not allow North Korean workers um, in their countries because the gov government of North Korea uh, takes a fair amount of the remittances those people send home. Mm -hmm. so, so Tillerson is thinking in very creative ways about turning the spigots off uh, on money that goes to North Korea, and he deserves a lot of credit for that. Fair enough. Uh, does that include China, Corey? Uh, well, the Central Bank of China has instructed Chinese banks to stop loaning money mm -hmm. to companies doing business in South Korea. Okay. Nobody's ever gotten the Chinese to do that before. So, yeah, that, too, goes to Tillerson's credit. Whether they do it for longer than the 20 minutes we're looking at them <laughs> is an open question, and the Chinese record isn't very good in that regard. Uh, so, so follow up, which is not the long suit of this presidential administration, um, will matter a whole lot on that, but, but they are trying to think about additional tools that could be used. You know, it's actually a fiction that there's no country in the world under more airtight, um, under more airtight sanctions than North Korea. We have vacillated on this, and there is actually quite a lot of room for continuing to choke off sources of revenue to the North Korean government. Okay. Let me, let me put one other crisis on the table. How, how do you describe what, what is the policy that the president uh, has with respect to Iran? What's the value in the decertification of the yeah. deal? with Iran vis-a-vis -vis the nuclear weapons and, you know, kind of punting it over to Congress then either to activate, not activate um, uh, sanctions again. What, you know, what is the policy there? Uh, so the policy is to refuse to certify as required by U.S. law. Right that Iran is in compliance with the nuclear agreement. That is correct. Even though everybody seems to say, including American outlets and institutions, that in fact it is in compliance with the nuclear. Yes, that's true. So, so to refuse to certify, but not to withdraw from the agreement. Right. Uh, and... Uh, this, uh, there are two ways to interpret uh, this. One is that it's a parallel to the recklessness with which the White House approached 
uh, the DACA legislation about children brought illegally to the United States by their parents mm -hmm. uh, to take no responsibility for outcomes and punt the policy to Congress to solve. Uh, you know, behaving recklessly and then expecting heroism out of Congress <laughs> tends not to be a winning strategy. But I'm also, in a way, a, a teensy bit um, in favor of this because Congress has for too long not held up its share of the constitutional bargain on foreign policy and forcing Congress to actually make decisions on stuff rather than uh, accruing more and more responsibility to the executive strikes me as good for the republic. It's bad for Iran policy, but it's good for the republic. Um, and what I, the other interpretation of what's happening is that you have a petulant and erratic president who says, I campaigned against this thing, I'm not certifying it. Uh, and a smart national security advisor who pulled a team together and said, the president's unmovable on this, the agreement is in our interests, is there any way both these things can be sustained simultaneously? And some smart NSC staffer said, well, certification is just American law. It carries no weight anyplace else. Mm -hmm. We can let the president make a big political statement domestically and have it have no effect on the agreement. Whether that's achievable, I'm not sure. So far, it appears to have worked. Right. Mm -hmm. that, uh, that conversations with the Iranians and with American allies have emphasized the fact that uh, we're not withdrawing from the agreement. Uh, and the Trump administration may, in fact, have ended up with a net gain if they hit all these slalom gates uh, without, you know, catching a tip and throwing us all down the mountain. Uh, they may have actually achieved at leaving the success of leaving the deal in force while denying Iran the material benefits they were supposed to get from the deal, which is banks loaning money and the return of normal commerce, because there's so much uncertainty associated with Trump policy towards Iran that people will be hesitant to, to enter into to binding agreements or long-term economic engagements. So in effect, you're saying uh, you don't give them the benefits that were implicit in the, in the deal with respect to Iran, that is normalization of the relationship. Um, and that that, and it allows the president to say, see, I, I told you I disagreed with the agreement. Yes. Hmm. Whether that is sufficient to keep the agreement in place mm -hmm. or whether it earns the United States a reputation as a country you can't make a deal with because they don't keep the deal right. or incurs the third order costs of our European allies being exasperated with us and unwilling to help us achieve other things we want. Those are all open questions, and I'm skeptical the Trump administration has given them any serious thought. <laughs> okay. Let me, let me end with uh, one other area, because we've been talking a fair bit about uh, nuclear strategy, nuclear policy, 
uh, of the United States in Korea with respect to Iran. Uh, so let me uh, pose this uh, question to you. Um, I, I'm trying to understand the administration's policy uh, on, on the nuclear uh, issue, nuclear weapons. There has been a draft of the new nuclear posture review. Uh, it was presented in September uh, at a White House meeting, and I think this is the famous one where he looked at the numbers when it was appalled because of the reduction in the number of, of uh, nuclear uh, weapons uh, for the United States. But among uh, the options being considered in that uh, posture review, in the report, might be a proposal to relax constraints that were laid down by the Obama administration in the 2010 NPR, right? And which pledged the U United States would only use its nuclear weapons in extreme circumstances to defend the vital interests of the United States or its allies and partners, and never against non-weapon states in compliance with their non-proliferation obligations. So how, how is this relaxation that's being proposed an improvement then for U.S. deterrent policy, or is it likely to deter states at all from considering the acquisition of nuclear weapons? I actually don't think American non-proliferation policy has any effect at all on countries' choices about whether to acquire nuclear weapons. If I were North Korea, I wouldn't consider that U.S. pledge adequate that I could attack South Korea and the United States wouldn't break that pledge in extremists. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think we overestimate how much other people care about documents in our arcane language with which we talk about these things. Mm -hmm. I... Um, I think the American record for restraint in not crossing the nuclear threshold is extraordinarily admirable, right? We have lost more than one war without electing to cross the nuclear threshold um, and in, in, impose that kind of damage. Moreover, I also think it's absolutely in our interests not to cross the nuclear threshold unless the survival of the United States is at risk because we have some of the best conventional forces in the world. We're likely to win our wars if they remain conventional. And so we have a vested interest in countries not electing to use nuclear weapons for them not to become normal in the conduct of warfare because we are likelier to win our wars if they don't. Mm -hmm. so, so as a practical matter, I think that policy is already in place. And I don't think the language, um, you know, the Obama administration congratulates itself an awful lot on stuff like that. And I don't think it matters that much. So from your perspective, uh, deterrence is in place and war fighting capability remains at the conventional level uh, and obviously other things like cyber and blah, 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 right? So that's where U.S. policy, U.S. military posture really is in terms of military action. 
Yeah. Um, you know, we're a long way from having to fight the kinds of total wars uh, that World War II and World War I uh, exemplified. And that's wonderful. That's the measure of success of the American-led international order, that mostly the strongest states compete economically or they compete in soft power or they chip away at each other's military advantages, but, but they don't seek to conquer each other's territories and force populations into submission. And that's a really nice outcome of the American-led international order. I think we should celebrate it while it lasts. <laughs> and I also believe it'll last for a long time. All right. Well, thanks, Corey, for uh, all these insights into uh, American strategic policy. Really appreciate your willingness to come on uh, to talk about it. It was a great pleasure having the conversation with you. Oh, <laughs>